Here's where we are as a church as we get into uh, this Sunday together. Uh, we're entering sort of a new season in the life of our church, a new season uh, as a community. Uh, there's a number of things happening around us. Uh, one, we're entering the fall season. So this is the time where we've stopped going to the shore every weekend. You guys are here. You're settled down. Um, new students are coming into our city from literally all over the world and descending into our city. We have an opportunity to welcome new people that are coming to Philadelphia for the first time. Some of you are new students that are just entering your first semester at school, and so we want to welcome everyone and be the kind of community that welcomes some of these people as they find a home in this city and find a home among us. Uh, as a church, we've got a number of things happening over the next few weeks. Um, next week, we have a guest preacher coming from Real Life Church, which is, a, which is another Acts 29 church, one of the churches that we're connected to in the Acts 29 network. Um, to just remind us again that we're partnered in the gospel with other gospel-centered missional churches throughout this city. Um, and so Gino from Real Life Church will be with us next week, and I'm, I'm excited for us to have another voice in the pulpit. The week after that, we'll be celebrating together as we dedicate some of our children. Um, we've got some sons that we are dedicating as a family. We're dedicating the parents and the children and ourselves to these families, and so we'll preach through that day uh, of what it looks like to be godly parents so that we could raise godly sons and daughters uh, to the glory of God. And then the week after that, as we mentioned in our announcements, we've got the joint service with St. Mark's as they have their closing service, and um, they will pray for us and hand over mission and ministry and this property to us. So that's coming on October 10th. So those are the, the weeks that are coming. So be prayerful about those things. Participate as God would have you participate in all of that. In our preaching, uh, we're sort of in between two series. So last week we ended a series on Jonah. We had spent the whole Sunday, summer in the four chapters of Jonah, and we closed that series. In October, after these next three weeks are done, we're going to start a new series called Being the Church and talk through what it means to not just go to church, but actually be the church and what it would mean for us to be uh, a church and a gospel-centered community. And what did Jesus mean when he meant um, you are the church? So we'll try and talk through that, um, and that'll take us through the rest of the fall, and, and I'm really excited for that new season and where the Lord's going to mature us. All that to say, today, we're sort of in between two places. So we've, we've finished one series, we're going to another one, we've got um, some weeks that are coming together, and so we're in between two places, we've got sort of a standalone, free kind of week. Uh, we're not rooted in a particular series or in a particular book of the Bible, uh, and so we get to sort of preach anywhere, anywhere in this book of 66 books. So what are we going to talk about today? I thought what we would preach on today is to remind ourselves again, what is the gospel? What is the gospel of Jesus? Okay. So as soon as you hear that, there's this temptation to go, I know the gospel. Tell me something a little more practical, a little, a little more relevant, because we know the gospel. We talk about the gospel all the time. This whole book is about the gospel. We've made that point. What are we going to talk about afresh with the gospel today? Uh, this theologian named D.A. Carson, he made this great point. He said that no one suddenly loses the gospel, but rather it's a process that tends to happen over some four generations. Because generally the trend that happens in Christian communities is in one generation you accept the gospel. By the next generation you begin to assume the gospel. 
By the next generation, you begin to confuse the gospel till eventually you lose the gospel. Right? The trend that happens is we accept the gospel and we accept it and celebrate it and cherish it to the point that we almost begin to assume the gospel. Rather than making it explicit and clear all the time, we begin to assume that everybody knows the gospel till eventually we begin to discover that not everyone knows the gospel so that the gospel becomes confused, so that you've got an understanding of the gospel that's a little different than his understanding of the gospel. And, and there's sort of lots of understandings of the gospel till eventually before you know it, you've sort of lost the gospel. You've drifted away from the gospel. You've centered yourselves on lots of different things, but because you don't return weekly to the substitutionary death of Jesus, the atoning work of Christ on the cross, and make these things explicit, we tend to lose the gospel. It's a tragic trend. And maybe you will be evidence of that trend. Here's what I mean. Many of you grew up in the church. You grew up your whole lives in the church. And yet I know from talking to some of you that this is the first season of your life where you feel like you get the gospel. How does that happen? How is it that many of us have stories where I went to Sunday school everywhere, every week, I was in the youth group, I did the missions trip, and yet it's now in these last three months, six months, a year, two years, that suddenly the lights have turned on and I get the gospel, right? Because we can be a community that assumes the gospel and confuses the gospel till eventually, tragically, we lose the gospel. Now, as glorious as it is that many of us are now coming alive to the gospel, that's a scary trend. And here's why it's especially scary. Because our kids are growing up in church. This isn't just something that happened to you. This is something that could happen to our next generation. Because what if we, who have accepted the gospel, assume it for our kids rather than explicitly stating it so that they grow up with a confused understanding or the one right after them by our grandchildren's time, we've lost the gospel. What we want is a long, enduring legacy for as long as God would have us of remaining centered on the gospel. And the way to do that is to explicitly state it all the time, every week, so that wherever we go in this book, we're coming back again to Christ and Him crucified. We're stating it. We're doing so unapologetically because we actually believe that this was God's idea, that God had set up the gospel to actually be a big deal, to be the central deal, to be the thing that we return to all the time, every week. All right, so all that to say, what I'm hoping for us is that rather than assuming the gospel, we would be a place and a people that make the gospel explicit. And rather than confusing it, we would make it clear. And rather than eventually losing it, we would learn it and love it all the deeper, all the more, all the time. So if we're going to take this Sunday to unpack the gospel, where are we going to go? We literally could go anywhere in this book of 66 books. For today, I want us to go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, we're looking especially at verses 12 through 17, the passage we read before. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and verses 12 through 17. When you get to 1 Timothy, Paul is going to unpack again what the gospel is. He's going to do it to a church called Ephesus. Ephesus was this young church plant in a great city, Right, So things that we can resonate with. A church that had come alive to the gospel, was excited about the gospel, but over time began to drift away from the gospel. 
And so a host of problems creep into the church at Ephesus. As you read through the chapters, you're going to see that there's improper men and immodest women. They're fighting, they're quarreling, there's divisions, there's fractions, there's teams. There's a mess of problems at Ephesus. And so for Paul, he wants to remedy what's happening at Ephesus. And to do so, he begins in chapter 1 by making clear what the gospel is. In verses 12 to 17, he's going to present the gospel. Only he does it in a very interesting way. Here's what I mean. If Paul wants these people to get the gospel, come back to the gospel, understand the gospel, he could do it in a number of ways. For example, one of the ways he could do it would be to list some truth statements for them to believe, right? He could give them a set of propositions, propositional truths for them to believe. He could hand them a systematic theology textbook and say, read this, believe this, study this, and you will know the gospel. Right? He could, he could do it in a number of ways. In fact, even when we speak of the gospel, we do it by presenting some truths. So, for example, one way that you can understand the gospel is just remembering four words. God, man, Christ, response. God, man, Christ, response. That tells the story of the gospel. You have a holy God who created man. Man to be in relationship with him, to enjoy God, to enjoy all things, and that man sinned against God and was alienated from God and fractured in his relationship with God. God, man, Christ. But then God sent Christ into the world because he loved this man to redeem this man so that Christ went to the cross bearing the sin of man and response. That's the famous verse that we know in John 3.16, that whoever repents and believes in this Christ will not perish but have everlasting life. Right? You've got a set of truths. You have a good God who made good men and women who sinned against that God, who sent Christ into the world to redeem that man, and all who respond by repenting and believing in Christ have everlasting life with him. Some have called that sort of the gospel on the ground. Another way of saying it might be calling it the gospel in the air. So not just at the ground level of how it applies to you, but another four words I'll give you. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Another way, again, of unpacking the gospel. Except now, not just looking at you, a way to describe it would be saying that God, a holy God, a completely other God, who is completely alien to his creation, created. Created the world. Created us to enjoy one another. Created us to enjoy God. Created us to enjoy the world. And this good creation was again fractured and broken by the fall. So that rather than creation loving creator, Romans 1 says that creation turned inward and loved creation. So we worshipped things that were made rather than creator God. And the things that God gave us that were supposed to result in praise to God rather ended up resulting in terminating on us. So one pastor said, for example, God gave us food. And food was supposed to result in praise to God. So you were supposed to eat your chocolate or eat that pancake, and you were supposed to go, how amazing is God? But rather, creation has terminated all things on itself so that food either leads to gluttony or indifference. Right? So either I eat it in a way that is sinful and wrong, or I'm indifferent by it and don't even recognize the good gift I receive. And so rather than resulting in praise to God, all things have turned on itself, terminated, and gone astray. 
Wine, rather than being a good gift from God, leads to either indifference or alcoholism. Sex, rather than being a good gift that results in praise to God, leads to perversion or indifference or abuse. All good gifts given by Creator God has been ruined by the fall. So that now we're at enmity with one another, enmity with all things, enmity with God. Creation, fall, redemption. And again, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world who lived the life the man and the woman were to live, who enjoyed creation and enjoyed Creator in the right way, and who bore on Himself the sin of all the world and restoration. That He's not just saving individuals, but He is making all things new. Right? All things are being swept up into the redeeming work of Christ so that all things, creations, systems, nations, cities, are being redeemed by God. And, and one pastor has rightly said, you've got to keep both the, the gospel in the air and the gospel in the ground in balance together. Because if you lose either one, you miss the point. Right? If we've got a gospel on the ground that neglects the gospel of the air or the, the big project that God is doing, then we will become incredibly individualistic, as the church often does, where everything God is doing is doing for me, and we miss that He loves cities, that He wants to redeem the poor, that He's all for social justice, that we can be a part of Him renewing all things. But if we take the gospel of the air and miss the gospel on the ground, then we're all for social justice and feeding the poor, but we miss proclaiming the gospel to individual sinners who need to repent and be restored to God. You've got to hold both. Okay, I've said all that to say Paul could give some propositional statements and explain clearly as he does what the gospel is. If you hear me say that Paul is somehow against propositional truths, you've heard me wrong. Just read Romans, read Ephesians. You'll see that Paul is on doctrine like white on rice. He loves it. He's all about it. He speaks it all the time. But in 1 Timothy 1, he presents the gospel in a very different way. What he does for the people to get the gospel is he basically tells them his story. He gives them his testimony. He takes these eternal truths and he latches it onto his life so that as they see it work out in the real life, flesh and blood life of a human being, they're supposed to get the gospel. You can, you can present the gospel to truths or you can also present it as it's affected, impacted, invaded the life of a real life, flesh and blood human being. And that's what Paul does in 1 Timothy 1. Another way to say this would be, what Paul does is he draws you his timeline, right? So if you've been at Seven Mile Road, you know we've got these things called soul care groups, these smaller communities that meet outside of our Sunday gathering. And one of the things that each of our soul care groups, as we're trying to get to know one another and hear one another's stories, is we're writing out our timelines. So we grab this giant sheet of white paper, we've got this thick black marker, and we start telling the story of our lives beginning to now, where we are, who we've become, who's impacted us, seasons of grace, seasons of darkness, and we're telling our story. Now, I love these timelines because I get to hear about people's stories, so I get to find out how did that guy ever land, that girl, how did he get that job, how did they end up at this church? You get to hear their stories. But even a deeper, more profound reality is you're hearing the gospel. 
right? As you begin to hear them say, this is who I was and this is where my life was headed. And, and then suddenly in this season, this truth and this person named Jesus came and invaded and this is the life that now I lead. You're hearing the gospel as you hear these timelines. So what I want you to picture is that in 1 Timothy 1, what Paul is doing is he's grabbed a huge piece of white paper. He's got a thick black marker in his hand, and he's going to start drawing his timeline. And as you, tell, as you hear him tell his story, Paul is expecting, anticipating that we're going to get the gospel, that it's going to be clear and explicit, that we'll learn it, we'll love it, so that with him we will shout amen to the whole thing. All right, so this week we're in 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 17. We're hearing again the gospel so that we might learn again that we are, you can hear this with me, great sinners, Christ is a great Savior, and God is greatly to be praised. We are great sinners, Christ is a great Savior, and God is greatly to be praised. I'm going to pray, and then we'll look at 1 Timothy 1 together. Father, thank you for these men and women who have sat here ready to hear your word. We pray that by your Holy Spirit you would prepare our hearts to consider what you have to say through your word. I pray, Jesus, that you would by your Spirit make the gospel clear, make it explicit, help us to rally around it, submit to it, believe it, respond to it, and help it to be anchored in our souls and in this church that it would never be lost, not ever, this is our prayer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Paul's going to begin his timeline. He's got his white sheet. He's going to draw his timeline, and he begins by telling you his past. This is how he starts, verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. Paul's going to start with who he was. This is his past. And he says, Formerly, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. If you don't know Paul's story, I get the privilege of telling it to you or reminding it to you again. Let me tell you who Paul was. Paul actually was born a child that his parents named Saul. Right? So born to two good, godly Jewish parents, and they named their precious son Saul, and Saul was given the best education that money could buy. Saul grew up under the feet of a, a teacher named Gamaliel, and Saul was learning from literally the best and most educated religious authority of his day. Saul sat at the feet of Gamaliel and learned from him so that Saul grew up a young man, moral, religious, righteous, who knew the scriptures incredibly well. In one part of the New Testament, he says, I exceeded my teachers in zeal for God. And so here's a man who's on fire for God, loves God's word, is zealous for God, except it's a very misguided, misinformed zeal. When you think of Saul... What I want you to think of is whatever you think of when you hear religious fundamentalist extremist, whatever images come to your mind, that's who Saul was. Here's why. The very first time you see Saul in the scriptures, it's not where you'd expect. You don't see him in the synagogue. You don't see him at a prayer meeting. You don't see him at a study of the scriptures. The very first time Saul appears in the Bible 
He's actually standing at the execution of a man named Stephen. There's a young man who loves Jesus, and the very first time Saul appears in the Bible, he's got his arms sort of folded, watching, a smile smirking on his face, standing in approval over Stephen's execution. You see, who Saul grows up to be is this religious, fundamentalist, extremist terrorist. That what you're hearing when you hear Saul's timeline is the testimony of a terrorist. In fact, let me, let me read for you the first scene in which Saul appears in the Bible. It's Acts chapter 7, verses 57. It says, But they cried out, that's this huge mob, with a loud voice, and stopped their ears and rushed together at Stephen. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And then it goes on to say, And Saul approved of his execution. Here's who Saul is. Saul's passionate pursuit in life was to destroy Christianity and eradicate the Christian faith from the face of the earth. That's the one thing that drove this man Saul. And so the first time you see him, he's standing there as this young man named Stephen is being stoned to death. Acts 7 says that Stephen's face looked like the face of an angel because everyone knew that he was holy and right with God. And the next scene you see is that face is forever marred as rocks are hurled at his face, at his body, till he's killed. And Saul is standing there giving his approval over Stephen's execution. That's how Saul's timeline begins. Formerly, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent of God. The blood has barely dried from Saul's cloaks before the timeline continues. This is what it says in Acts 3, Acts 8, verse 3. It says, But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So he's just finished killing Stephen, and with, within just a few verses, in the very next chapter, in Acts 8, it says Saul was ravaging the church. And Luke, who writes the book of Acts, uses these verbs so you begin to see who this man Saul really was. Picture him ravaging the church. What images come to mind as you hear those verbs? And then he says, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So you picture him in Jerusalem, going from house to house, seeing if there's a Christian. And if there is, he's dragging off husbands from their wives, separating wives from their husbands, tearing away fathers from their daughters, ripping away mothers from their sons. And he's committing these men and women to prisons. That's how Saul's timeline continues. Then it says in Acts 9, just a few verses later, very next chapter, here's how his timeline continues. Verse 1, but Saul still breathing murders and threats. And the, again, the language Luke uses is sort of the oxygen that fills Saul's lungs is to breathe out threats and murders against the church. But Saul still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So here's how he's telling his story now. He's continuing and he says, and here's what I did. 
My zeal for destroying Christianity was so great that it wasn't enough to torture the Christians in Jerusalem. I got permission from the authorities, letters in my hand, to travel 150 miles north to Damascus to see if there were men and women who were Christians there to drag them bound back to Jerusalem and commit them to prison. Looking back on his life, this is what Saul says in Acts 26 as he remembers who he was. Hear it from his own lips. He's telling you his story. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. You hear Paul's story? Paul is saying, I went to the foreign cities, and when I found men and women there, I tried to make them blaspheme. So you picture a torturer standing with a Christian saying, if you do not renounce Jesus, I will kill you. And whatever images come to your mind as you think of that, that is who Saul was. I tried to make them blaspheme. And then he says, and every time there was a vote put to cast them to death, I always voted against them. Saul's vote always was cast to kill whoever was on trial that believed in Jesus. In raging fury, I persecuted them, he says, even to foreign cities. Hopefully you're beginning to see that Saul's past is a very dark one. And hopefully you're beginning to see that it's clear Saul is a great sinner. In fact, so much so that I wonder, even after he was changed, even after he was converted, even after the transformation, and he's now Paul, I wonder if Saul's past didn't haunt him. Right? I just picture Saul, Paul now, and I picture him constantly hearing the voices of men and women in his head as he's trying to sit down and write. Maybe he's trying to author the books of the Bible and just trying to have some quiet, and yet the screams of moms ripped away from their children that he's committed to prison keep ringing in his mind. I wonder if Saul walks down the street, now Paul, and sees a heap of rocks and can't help but think of Stephen. Maybe he breaks down by the side of the road, weeping over the one that he killed. Right? I wonder if he would stand, like I'm standing now, preaching to a crowd in Jerusalem, wondering if that woman was a widow because of him. Or if that little girl was an orphan because of him. Because the, the reality is, no matter how much Paul has become changed, his past is permanent. It's written in, in thick, dark, black marker. And he can't raise from the dead the ones that he has killed. And he can't set free the ones that are still rotting in prison as he goes from city to city planting churches. Even as he's writing letters of the New Testament, his past will forever be a part of his story. Saul, Paul, was a really great sinner. And I wonder if there's a part of you that can relate to that. Maybe there's a part of you that as you think about your past, you can at least relate to that. As you think about who you were, that lump sort of begins to grow in your throat. And you sort of swallow hard. And your, your sweat starts to pour, your your voice trembles as you begin to think about who you are and what you've done. 
things that you would never want another human being to know, things that you're afraid God himself even knows, as you begin to think of who you were. Maybe your past holds you that same way. Maybe you get what it would be like for Paul, because I think that when Paul wrote 1 Timothy 1, I don't think these things came easy. I don't know, but I imagine that when Paul wrote, formerly, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, that those things didn't just roll off his pen, that he paused, maybe he teared, maybe he had to collect himself again to write out who he was and what he had done. Right? This is why Paul even says, forgetting what's behind, I press on to lay hold of that for which Christ laid hold of me. Because Paul has a really dark past. So let me ask you, what would you write if you had to do what Paul did, if you sat down with a piece of paper and a pen and you had to write, formerly I was, what words would fill in that blank? Formerly I was. And then, addict or an adulterer or abusive or formerly I was a, a liar or a cheat or a thief or, or formerly whatever those words. I imagine in a room like ours, we'd have some dark words to fill those blanks with. Formerly I was, Paul says, a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. Here's what I want you to hear. If you're going to get the gospel right, here's how it starts. The gospel says that you are a great sinner. And Paul got that. If you're going to understand the gospel, you have to start with the reality that you are a great sinner. In fact, Paul gets this so much that listen to what he says. Not just formerly I were these things, I was these things. He says in verse 15, this is a trustworthy saying, Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Or of all the sinners, I am the chief. What tense is I am? Not past tense. This is present tense. This is the Apostle Paul writing 1 Timothy. This is towards the end of his life. This is after he's planted Ephesus and Corinth and planted churches. This is after he's written letters that have made its way into the New Testament. This is Paul towards the end of his life. In, in 2 Timothy, Paul is about to say, I've run the good race, I've fought the good fight, now he's waiting for me a crown. He's ready towards the end of his life. And now present tense, after all these great things he's done, Paul says, I am the worst of the sinners, the chief of the sinners. How does he say that? Because Paul gets the gospel so much that it's not just when he was stoning Stephen that he was a sinner in need of Christ and the cross. But now, I am a sinner. Not just I, I was, I am a sinner. If you remember, Jesus in the gospels tells this story of two men who go into the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee, one's a tax collector. And if you know the story, you know immediately who the good guy is and the bad guy is. Pharisee, good guy, tax collector, sinner. And Jesus tells the story to say, here's this Pharisee that rattles off his resume to God. I fast twice a week. I give all that I have to the poor. I thank you, God, that I'm not like that man. And then the camera of Jesus' story sort of pans out and goes to the tax collector. And this man can't even look up. His face is buried in his chest. He's beating his breast and he cries out, have mercy on me. And then he says, the sinner. 
In the original language, he actually uses the article the. Not just have mercy on me, Lord, a sinner. This guy has so gotten his sin that he says, have mercy on me, Lord, the sinner. As if he were the example of what a sinner is. And that's what Paul says. Paul doesn't just say, formerly I was. He says, I am the sinner. As if you were to open a dictionary, look up sinner, Paul would say, you would find a snapshot of my face because I am the chief of the sinners. If you're going to get the gospel, you have to get sin. And not just generically, but that you are the sinner. We were in theology track just a week ago on a Saturday morning. Some of us men gathered to study theology. And Charlie, one of our guys, put it perfectly. He said that, and I'm going to butcher how he said it, he said it much better than I say, but he said that he used to think that our default position was that we were good, and every time we sinned, we went away from who we were by default. And he said now what he sees is that we are by default sinners, dead in our sin, and that everything we do just corroborates, uh, adds to the witness that we are sinners. Or another one of our guys, Dennis, said he, he used to think that we were like sick people in the hospital that just needed to get revived and made better. And now he sees it's not that we need reviving. It's need, our, our need is resurrection because we're dead in our trespasses and sins. That we're not just sinners because we sin, but rather we sin because we are great sinners. If you're going to get the gospel, if we're not going to lose it, if we're not going to confuse it, if we're not going to assume it, but rather make it explicit all the time, we've got to start here. We are great sinners. But if you only get that, you only get half the gospel, right? Because the gospel keeps going. Paul doesn't end his timeline, but he keeps writing because there's really good news. And that is that we are great sinners, but Christ is a great Savior. But Christ is a great Savior. If you've gone to church your whole life and all you've left with is that you are guilty, you're not perfect, you're a sinner, you've left with half the good news. Right? It'd be like going to a doctor who says, you have a horrible illness and you're going to die, and leaving the office before he says, but there is a cure. Because listen to how Paul continues. This is what he says. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy, verse 16, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul's timeline continues, we are great sinners, but Christ is a great Savior. Right, do you hear him? But I received mercy, and the grace of our Lord overflowed like a river that's bursting past its bank. Grace and mercy and faith overflowed for me in Christ Jesus. And then you think of this. Not only was his past forgiven, not only his sins cleansed, he then says, and he counted me faithful and made me in his service. Right? That's how verse 12 begins. I thank God who gave me strength 
because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Because here's what happens. As Paul's timeline continues in Acts 9, after he's got letters in his hand ready to kill Christians, in Acts chapter 9, he's headed to Damascus and this blinding light fills the sky. A great voice booms from the heavens and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He falls to the ground, literally knocked off his horse, cannot see, and he screams back, Who are you, Lord? And the voice says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And along that road, Saul is forever changed. He gets a new name, he becomes Paul. He gets grace, and he gets mercy, and he gets love, and he gets faith. And God forever changes this man so that this man is not only just forgiven, but now appointed into God's service. I want you to think about what that is for a second. It's one thing for God to forgive Paul and put him on the shelf. It's another now for him to appoint him to his service. What does that mean? That means that, that Jesus took Saul the wolf who was ready to kill the sheep of Jesus' flock and makes him a sheep. And better, makes him a shepherd of that sheep. Right? It's like Jim often says, I thank God that not only that you've saved me, but that now I often I get to play on your team. Right? Not only have I been saved, Saul now gets to be pastor and planter. Right? The man who had letters in his hand ready to destroy the church is now authoring the letters of the New Testament to save the church. The one who is going to shut down churches has planted more churches than any. The one who had letters in his hand to kill Christians writes letters to Corinth and Galatia and Philippi and Ephesus to save Christians. It'd be like this. It'd be like you opening tomorrow's newspaper and it says, Osama bin Laden captured. Osama bin Laden pardoned. Osama bin Laden, appointed ambassador of the United States. Right. If you get the never, ever, 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 ever going to happen, the sheer impossibility, the sheer scandal that that would cause, then you finally get the scandal of grace. You get the scandal that is the gospel, because that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus took the guy who of all the earth was most committed to destroying the church and made him the one that plants more churches than anyone else. Jesus took the guy who hated Christianity more than anyone else and made him the most famous Christian the world has ever known. Because Jesus is a great Savior. We are great sinners, but Jesus is a great Savior. And so this is the gospel. He says it in the most succinct, beautiful way. He says, this is a trustworthy saying, worthy of full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. That's the gospel. The gospel is we are the chief of sinners, and God sent Jesus into the world that all who repent and believe in him would be saved. And maybe you're sitting here, and honestly you'd say, Ajay, I want to believe that, but you don't know my past and you don't know the things that I've done. Here's what I want to say to you. I have no idea what your timeline looks like, but I know Paul's timeline. And Jesus saved Paul for you. I'll say that again. Part of why Jesus saved Paul was for your sake. Here's what Paul says. 
But I receive mercy for this reason. So Paul is about to give us the reason he got mercy. Tell us, Paul, why did Jesus save you? He says, I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost of the sinners, Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, Jesus saved me, the worst of the sinners, so that he would have an example for the rest of the world of his incredible patience and mercy. Jesus saved Paul so that Paul would be a trophy in his display case for all of eternity, saying, if I saved a scoundrel like Paul, then nobody is beyond the limits of my grace. Right? He is exhibit A. Jesus has Paul saved so that forever he will have an exemplar par excellence, the perfect example of what salvation is. That if I could save Paul, I could literally save anybody. And if I could change his past and give him a new future, I could change anybody so that literally no one is beyond the gospel. If we're going to understand the gospel, we've got to get that we are great sinners and Christ is a great Savior. And if you get all that, then only one response remains. Listen to how he closes verse 17. Now to the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Here's why. Paul is saying, if you get that you're a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior, then the only response is God is greatly to be praised. If we are great sinners and Christ is a great Savior, then Paul ends by saying, then God is greatly to be praised. Right? You imagine Paul writing this. He writes slowly, I was formerly a blasphemer, an insolent opponent, a persecutor. Maybe his pen picks up speed as he says, but I receive mercy and grace and faith and love were poured out to me. But then I picture Paul sort of shouting at the top of his lungs, louder than the loudest one here. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. And he ends with that word, Amen. Right, this Hebrew word, this word that the people would say when they gathered in assembly, this word that doesn't mean, I've finished my prayer, you can open your eyes, but rather this word that means, we agree. Because what Paul would have anticipated is, here's this church in Ephesus that has drifted away from the gospel, confused it, lost it. When they hear again what the gospel is, that we are great sinners, that Christ is a great Savior, and Paul leads into this passionate praise, now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, he expects the whole church would shout, Amen. We agree. We agree, Paul. Christ is a great Savior. We are great sinners. God is greatly to be praised. So if you came to church this morning, here's my prayer. Here's been my prayer this morning for you. Maybe you've come and you've got an ounce of you that still believes, I'm not so bad. I've got my resume ready for God. I'm going to rattle off the reasons why I should be acceptable to Him. Would you see what Paul sees? You are a great sinner. Every one of you. A great sinner. But if you've come to church and you've let your past be a prison that keeps holding you, keeps condemning you, that keeps convincing you that God could never love you, would you look at Paul, 
Jesus' exhibit A and says, Christ save me, though I was the worst of the sinners, that he might have an example of his perfect patience for all who would believe in him for eternal life. And would you know that the gospel says you are a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. And if you've got an ounce of spiritual life in you, would you recognize that that is completely owed to God? That He is greatly to be praised, so that when we say now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever, we would shout together, Amen. Amen. Let's pray.